is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to the first full episode of Season 2. This is Episode 7, Frances Milton Trollope. Best known now as the mother of successful Victorian novelist Anthony Trollope, Frances, or Fanny as she was more usually called, was a literary force in her own right. She's also a shining example of the fact that you don't have to be young to accomplish great things, which, to be honest, is giving me life right now as I inch closer and closer to 30. Her writing career really only started in earnest, i.e. writing for a living, when she was 52. And to our best knowledge, she wrote 40 books, 6 travelogues, 34 novels, as well as various articles and poems during her career. So what makes Fanny Trollope lesser known? Well, until the mid-1990s, as Victoria Glendenning notes in the foreword of Teresa Ransom's 1995 biography, Fanny Trollope and Remarkable Life, No one had made a case for Fanny Trollope as a significant author. Her literary contribution has, in the century since her death, been overshadowed by that of her son Anthony. But Anthony Trollope did not achieve fame until well into middle age, and up until that point, his mother was the famous one in the family. Seriously famous. So, before we dive into her life story, let's take a quick tour around the world in Francis Milton Trollope's lifetime. In 1779, Captain James Cook wrote his last entry in the Discovery's ship's log. In 1780, Benjamin Franklin invented bifocal eyeglasses, and the Great Hurricane killed 20,000 to 30,000 in the Caribbean, hitting Barbados first. It was the Atlantic's deadliest recorded hurricane up to that point. In 1783, Joseph Michael Montgolfier and Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier invented the hot air balloon. In 1788, the first settlers arrived in Botany Bay in Australia. In 1800, the U.S. Library of Congress was established with a $5,000 allocation. In 1801, the first asteroid was spotted in space. In 1807, London's Pall Mall became the first street lit by gaslight, and the first railway passenger service began in England. In 1810, Hidalgo led the Mexican Revolution for independence from Spain, and Chile declared independence from Spain. In 1812, the waltz was introduced into English ballrooms. Supposedly, most people consider it, quote, disgusting and immoral. In 1818, Silent Night was composed by Franz Joseph Gruber, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was published. In 1820, the tomato was proven to be non-poisonous. It's very important. Um, groundbreaking piece of work. Before that, Italian food did not have tomatoes. Oh, well, before marinara sauce. That's just so bizarre. In 1830, London's reorganised police force, Scotland Yard, was formed. In 1832, the first cholera outbreak in London, England occurred. 
or the first well-documented one, Greece became an independent republic and Mount Vesuvius erupted. In 1837, Queen Victoria took the throne. In 1839, Charles Darwin was elected a member of the British Royal Society. And the first opium war began. The British forced the Chinese government to allow the opium trade. And this went on until 1842. And in 1847, the rotary-type printing press was patented by Richard March Ho in New York City, and Liberia declared independence from the American Colonization Society. In 1848, Yucatan officially united with Mexico. Karl Marx's Communist Party Manifesto was published, the Matale rebelled against British rule in Sri Lanka, and a nationalist revolt in County Tipperary, Ireland, against British rule was put down by a government police force. I think 1848 might be my favourite year ever. So much going on. But here's another really important invention, because in 1853, the first potato chips or crisps were prepared by Chef George Crumb. The world was never the same. In 1854, Lord Tennyson's poem Charge of the Light Brigade was published. In 1858, a pencil with an attached eraser was patented. In 1859, the Suez Canal Company began construction on the canal in Egypt, and Big Ben, located at the top of St. Stephen's Tower, rang for the first time. In 1861, a flush toilet with separate water tank and a pool chain was painted by visitor Thomas Crapper. In 1863, four-wheeled roller skates were patented by one James Plimpton of New York. So much coming out of New York. Yeah, lots of inventors there. I think Edison was also there or soon to be there. Or maybe he was in New Jersey. I don't remember. (laughs) Whatever he could steal Tesla's ideas. Yes, Team Tesla. Hashtag Team Tesla. Put us down. (laughs) You take a strong view on this. Yes. (laughs) So, should we talk about Francis Milton Trollope's life? Yes, let's dive in. Francis Milton Trollope was born on March 10th, 1779, and was the middle child of William Milton, the vicar of Heckfield, and his first wife, Mary. Papa was an amateur inventor, and among the cool things he came up with was a tidal bypass to control the water levels on the Avon River so ships could come and go with more ease from Bristol's port. And he was educated at Oxford, where he apparently indulged in gambling, endless drinking sprees, and riotous behaviour, which is not quite what one might expect of a vicar in training. Like his daughter, William married relatively late in life, at 31. That's for the times, because now 31 is practically embryonic. I read somewhere that, uh, in at least in the mid-Victorian period, the average age at which folks got married was about 24. I don't know if it's true... Um, in the 1770s, but definitely by mid-Victorian times, they would have been 24. Yeah, I would imagine if anything, in the 1770s, it'd be earlier. Yeah. Which, as a 25-year-old who's basically only committed to studying Francis Milton Trollope, 
is scary. Mm. So William and his wife soon moved back to Bristol and they installed a curate at Hetfield. And curates are an interesting part of Victorian life. I think I'd be interested to do a kind of mini-sode on them in the future because they're just so fascinating and they crop up in so much literature. Yes. I especially when I read that was thinking of, I don't know if you read Charlotte Bronte's Shirley, that scene with the three curates at the start. Yes. Oh, they're everywhere though, you know. Any Victorian, I was going to say novel, but perhaps any Victorian author has their like quintessential curate. So Fanny had five siblings, but three of them unfortunately died in infancy. Her older sister was Mary, born in 1776. Cecilia, born in 1778, died in infancy. Fanny was born in 1779. And then there's John in 1781, who died in infancy. Emily, 1782, also died, unfortunately. And Henry in 1784. So that leaves the surviving children of Mary, Fanny and Henry. So Mama died giving birth to Fanny's youngest brother, Henry, when Fanny was five or six years old. Frances was probably educated by her father, though Hannah Moore kept a school for girls in the area. There's no definitive proof that Fanny attended it. Her father was described as a, quote, good scholar with decidedly scholarly tastes, end quote, so this was clearly no disadvantage. She also had the opportunity of meeting his intellectual friends. And I think it's important to note how growing up in Bristol would have shaped Fanny's understanding of the world in important ways. Bristol was a major trading point, and it's one of the main ports of the transatlantic slave trade. So she wouldn't have actually seen slaves being shipped in, but she would have seen the ships leaving the port to pick up slaves, and then returning from the West Indies with sugar, cotton and tobacco that they'd obviously traded for the slaves. And one of her most famous books, or the ones I'm most interested in, is the first anti-slavery novel, so that's a really important point to pick up on. Yes. It sounds like her home and social life was something like the French salons of the Enlightenment. So she's surrounded by her father's intellectual friends in a household that seems to have embraced Enlightenment thinking. She was able to develop and voice her thoughts and opinions in ways many girls weren't at the time, which probably most people did not think was a service to her, but I think really helped her when she finally turned to writing later in life. Um, her circle was full of artists and literary folks. Bristol's belletrists at the time included Samuel Coleridge, Robert Southey, and Hannah Moore, to name a few. And then in 1800, Papa remarried, and his new wife's name was Sarah Partington. A year later, the family moved back to Heckfield from Bristol. At that point, Fanny was 21, never really got close to stepmama. It sounds like they had a kind of cordial relationship, but not particularly close. And about three years after her father remarried, she and her elder sister Mary moved to London to keep house for their baby brother Henry. He'd got a job as a clerk in the war office. So at this point, Fanny's 24, Mary's 27 and Henry's just 20. They moved into 27 Keppel Street and lived on Henry's salary of £90 a year. Fanny and Mary also had allowances of £50 a year, which most likely came from their stepmother Sarah. Apparently she wasn't responsible for the family's finances. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I just read The Vicar of Rexel, which is uh, one of Fanny's novels, and people will say that there's a lot of autobiographical material in them, which... I kind of always shrug off because they always say that about women writers. But anyway, in that novel, um, the stepfather takes over the finances and the adult children really resent having to go to that um, basically stranger for uh, money. So I wonder 
it, it just m- made me wonder if if there was more to that situation or if it was just really um, pleasant and polite. Who knows? We'll never know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, especially if you're 21 when your dad remarries. I mean, you, you're a fully formed person already. <laughs> yeah. You have to suddenly ask this other person for money that may have been yours before. So by all accounts, Fanny Milton was a bookish and outspokenly intelligent woman. A friend describes her as somewhat indifferent as to her own personal get-up, but very particular that those about her should be well-dressed. I should give you an idea as the kind of odd but funny person she was. I find that really endearing, that quote. Mm-hmm. And in 1808, she was shockingly still single at the age of 29. But all that was about to change, because that was the year she would meet Thomas Anthony Trollope, barrister, five years her senior. So here is a friend of the Henrys and a neighbour of the Miltons who lived at 16 Keppel Street, so he lives literally down the road. And in July, he sent her a copy of Crow's Verses and two O's in Latin, which were ostensibly for Henry, but then the signature Thomas gave as her devoted humble servant points to a kind of ulterior motive. In November, he proposed via letter, and the letter was a mixture of declarations of love and agonizing detail about his finances. And just to give you a sense of the tone, let me read the first lines. He begins, Is it most expedient for a man to make an avowal of his attachment to a lady viva voce, anglice tete-a-tete, or by epistolary correspondence? So in other words, he's wondering if he should propose face-to-face or if it's okay to do it by letter, but he's going to do it by letter anyway. And Fanny's response is similarly amusing as the anecdotes earlier. So she writes back, I fear you are not sufficiently aware that your choice, so flattering to me, is for yourself a very imprudent one. (laughs) So businesslike. So she went to stay with her father to prepare for the wedding, And uh, she and Thomas wrote to each other almost every day during their engagement while he stayed in London and prepared their house. And then they were married in 1809 on Thomas's 35th birthday. And the first years of their marriage were very happy. They were filled with parties and visits from friends. It was the same kind of French salon experience that we were talking about earlier. And Mary Russell Mitford, novelist, but also Fanny's friend, later wrote that Fanny used to be such a radical that her house in London was a perfect emporium of escaped state criminals. I remember asking her at one of her parties how many of her guests would have been shot or guillotined if they had remained in their own country. Right, because we have to remember that all the while in the background of Fanny's adult life, the French Revolution has been raging and its aftershocks have been rocking Europe. At this particular historical moment, Napoleon was in the middle of his 11 years as a self-declared emperor. So, Fanny and Thomas set up house at 16 Keppel Street. It's near Russell Square. Actually, it's really interesting. If you ever visit the University of London Senate House Library, um, which is where the Turnham family papers are located, if you get interested in Francis Eleanor Trollope in our later episodes, if you go there, you'll probably walk past a plaque that's on Keppel Street, which is to Fanny, and it says, Francis Trollope, author, lived at 16 Keppel Street near this site. Her sons, the authors Thomas Adolphus Trollope and Anthony Trollope, were born there. So I find that that plaque really interesting, because you might expect it to say Anthony Trollope was born here, because he's the most famous now. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It puts Francis at the top, and then has Thomas first, which makes sense, because he's older. 
Yeah, that's really cool, especially considering that for a long time, her legacy was kind of um, buried under that of her sons. Yeah, I'm not sure when that was put up, because I think the house has been destroyed, which is why it says near this site. Hmm. So I'd be interested to find out when that was erected. So we've mentioned two of her children, which is Thomas Adolphus and Anthony. She ended up having eight children over nine years, which is very impressive. Yeah. She was busy. You can see why she didn't start writing until later, until she'd finished that. Mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. And seven of the children survived infancy, so the oldest is Thomas Adolphus, who was born in 1810, who I've mentioned. He has a younger brother, Henry, in 1811. Arthur arrives in 1812. And then Emily is born and dies on the same day in 1813. Anthony is born in 1815. Cecilia is born in 1816, and then a second Emily is born in 1818. I'm not sure I quite understand the logic of giving the child the same name of their sibling that died. I would imagine that it would bring up a lot of emotions and be very emotionally difficult, but presumably it works for her. Yeah, and these names are already recycled, if you remember the names of her siblings who did not survive, particularly Cecilia and Emily, are recycled names. Yeah, so it's almost like Emily 2 is actually, and she's referred in a lot of the literature, she's referred to as Emily 2. Uh But she's actually Emily 3 because it's the first Emily, as you say. Mm -hmm. It's weird, but um, I mean, the Victorians were fond of recycling names even when namesakes were still living, so. Yeah, I mean, it's the huge tradition of giving your, like, giving the son the same name as the dad, which obviously happens here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think that still happens in Britain to some extent, like my My brother's middle name is my dad's name, so it definitely still happens. Yes. So as we mentioned, before the childbearing and childrearing began in earnest, Fanny enjoyed a period during which she threw dinner parties and socialized with friends. Uh, She loved to be around people for her whole life, and she continued to entertain and go out even when the children began to arrive, attending the theater, taking walks, and uh, playing with the children. Even if she wasn't the most domestically inclined, Fanny was a loving mother, and her eldest son Thomas recalls that my mother's disposition was one of the most genial, cheerful, happy imaginable. Not so his father's. Apparently Thomas Senior was fond of pulling his children's hair when they misbehaved or displeased him. Or I think he taught them for a while, and when they would get their sums wrong, he would pull the hair as a really great pedagogical method. So the younger Thomas said that interacting with his father was so sure to issue in something unpleasant that unconsciously we sought to avoid his presence and to consider as hours of enjoyment only those that could be passed away from it. And if that's not a clue about what's coming, let me just insert some trouble ahead sound effects. So I just want to take a moment here to call out the tendency in lots of history and biography where the narrator or the commentator says something like, they had lots of children, so it must have been a happy marriage. Um, As with so many stories, Fanny's is one in which the husband's ill temper and bad decisions initiate hard times for the family. They're also a catalyst for Fanny's career, but that's treading on spoiler territory, so I'll just reiterate, lots of children is not an indicator of a happy marriage especially in this part of the Victorian period, when women aren't considered legal persons in the eyes of the courts and thus have no legal power over their own person or property or children after they get married. Yeah, there's also the... Obviously, there's the lack of contraception Mm -hmm. or any kind of um, family planning services. And also at the risk of being quite 
crude. There's not as much to do as there is nowadays. You've got to entertain yourself somehow, right? Right. So even though they may not have had the happiest marriage, the Trollop's life was not bereft of happiness. Fanny did her best to bring joy to her children. For example, even when she takes over her children's education, she does so in very fun ways. So for, she taught her children the alphabet using a fascinating strategy detailed by her son, Tom. Quote, her plan for teaching letters was as follows. She had a great number of bone counters with the alphabet in capital and small letters on either side printed on them. Then, having invited a charming little girl, the daughter of a neighbor, she tossed the counters over the floor, instituting prizes for him or her who should, in crawling races over the floor, soonest bring the letter demanded. End quote. It sounds like she's got a good understanding of like how children's minds work and that you've got to make a, a game of it. So rather than giving them a horn book, you know, mm-hmm. I only found out about horn books quite recently. They're fascinating. So rather than giving them one of them just to kind of look at the letters, she makes a game out of it. It's been really interesting as we've recorded these episodes, and especially last year, um, to think about the way mothers teach their children. And I think this is one of the best strategies we've seen so far. It's certainly better than pulling their hair if they get it wrong. Right. <laughs> she understands that the carrot is definitely better than the stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the subject of which... As the years passed, Thomas Sr. became increasingly angry, confrontational, and erratic. So that's possibly because he kept taking mercury chloride, or calomel, for his migraines. Ironically, this probably only made the headaches worse and more frequent. So according to the, according to the World Health Organization, neurological and behavioural disorders may be observed after inhalation, ingestion, or dermal exposure of different mercury compounds. Symptoms include tremors, insomnia, memory loss, neuromuscular effects, headaches, and cognitive and motor dysfunction. So, quick sidebar to mention that this is the origin of the idea of being mad as a hatter, is that hatters used mercury a lot in the making of hats and would quite often become mad. Right, but in the Victorian period, even though like they seem to have learned this, they also kept dosing themselves and each other with mercury in various forms. So... Yeah, it's used for all sorts of things, isn't it? Because it's the kind of standard treatment for syphilis as well. Mm-hmm. As a migraine sufferer, I could kind of understand him taking anything that he thought would help. But also, clearly it wasn't a great plan. No, it was not. So while it likely came as a surprise to Fanny and her children when Papa, with no past farming experience whatsoever, decided to lease 160 acres and become a farmer in the late 1810s, it should be no surprise to us. Let's be charitable and blame that calomel. And I can imagine he might have, I think Ransom talks about, he might have justified the move to himself by saying that the open air and open space would benefit both his headaches and his children. Right. But obviously neither was true. Um, Frances Eleanor Trollope writes in her biography that the land was not charitable. So she says, The earth, like the sea, has a way of disregarding the most admirable a priori theories and can be subjugated only by hard and painful experience. So this plan might have not have been so disastrous if it was kind of for a year. I think your standard tenancy contract nowadays is for 12 months generally. But Thomas actually signed a lease for 21 years, which for a lawyer is not that smart. You'd think of all people, he would know not to do that. Just went all in there. (laughs) 
So the family moved to their leased acreage, dubbed Julian Hill, after Thomas's uncle's estate, and set about improving the property by building a large house in 1818. Unfortunately, in 1819, Thomas Sr.'s hopes of inheriting that estate were dashed when his uncle married and had an heir. And I kind of want to point out that this uncle is called Adolphus. And if you remember, Thomas Jr.'s name is Thomas Adolphus. So clearly there's a little bit of... um, that's a very deliberate move, basically. Right. Buttering up that uncle. What's he? He's like 60 and he hasn't got an heir, so you're like, oh, if I give my son your name as his middle name, he kind of becomes your heir by default. <laughs> if only it had worked. So the children went to a public school nearby. It's now one of the most prestigious public schools in the country because it's Harrow. So I feel like this is a point to gloss over some linguistic differences between British and American English. Because in British English, public school means private school, because we're very confusing. It stems from the Victorian tradition where they would be taught in a public school as opposed to with a private tutor at home. Mm, I see. Yeah, so in British English, it, public school is a fee-paying school, whereas a what would be called a public school in the States is called a state school here. We just like to confuse people. I'd, I'd heard of that before, but I've never been able to keep track. And also, I was homeschooled, so all of this lingo is really foreign to me. Yeah, that makes it so much more difficult if you're already in a back foot from the start. Yeah. Yeah, so the children went to Harrow, the public school nearby, but Fanny and Thomas had wanted them to go to Winchester, which is a prestigious boarding school, and also where Thomas Senior went to school, and Oxford, which Thomas Senior would also go to, and they wanted to make sure that their sons got the best education possible. There's no... I couldn't find any information on the daughters, like if they did... And this is still really early so it would have been just common for girls to learn at home i believe i would be really surprised if they were sent to school i would say it was much more likely that they would have been educated by fanny Hmm. so fanny continued to entertain even on the farm and she often invited friends over for a game of whist but thomas senior was definitely not a good sport so people tried to avoid playing if he was part of the game ah thomas such a cranky guy i think he's like all of us on our worst days but all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, Fanny always writes very respectfully of him, but also clearly is constantly strategizing for how to um, keep him from getting angrier than usual and keep the children out of the way of his wrath and um, possibly also socializes intentionally so that she has a buffer. Yeah, I definitely think that's probably the case. I think it's one of, actually, her most admirable kind of skills is writing about people in a way that's respectful so they can't be angry about it but in a way that makes her disdain quite clear Mm, yeah now we get on to our favorite part of any biography the doggos doggo so apparently the trollops were one of many families during this period who had a newfoundland dog for their family pet it's the same breed in Peter Pan, just FYI for a point of reference. So this um, this popularity of Newfoundland dogs spans the century. Um, the Trollops Newfie was named Neptune. That's I think is that all we know about Neptune? That's good. I feel like that's all. I, yeah, that's all I saw. He was probably a very good dog. They're all good dogs. <laughs> They're all good dogs, Brent. <laughs> Every dog is a good dog. I want to know more about the daughters and the dog. Less of the sons. In the nicest possible way. Mm-hmm. In 1820, Tom got into Winchester, and a year later so did Henry. And then in 1822, there was a scandal with a local vicar. 
Apparently he had been behaving inappropriately towards the younger female members of his flock. And many assume that was the foundation for Fanny's novel, The Vicar of Rexhill. There is just a big brouhaha locally, and um, partly because Fanny was uh, privy to a young girl's um, concerns slash um, infatuation with this vicar so she said that she'd been the vicar had given her like a holy kiss or something like that and and fanny told her that's fine but kisses lose their holiness if they're repeated frequently so just kind of very tactfully cautioning her from (laughs) allowing this to continue and everything kind of blew up in the community after that also in the 1820s an agricultural depression hit in england Farming was suddenly an even more precarious way to make a living, but they were stuck in a lease they couldn't get out of. And um, making matters worse, they did not readjust their style of living accordingly. They just kept living as they had, um, even traveling to Paris for 10 days of sightseeing. She's such a sensible woman, and I don't know if it's because she didn't really have the like Thomas couldn't be reasoned with but it seems she doesn't seem like the kind of woman that would just ignore that I wonder how much she knew about it also like did Thomas let her in on their financial state at this point or did he wait till it was irreparably bad and then let her know I think a lawyer who signed a 21 year lease probably wouldn't have told her yeah probably not until it was beyond saving yeah, until she couldn't help but notice even without his uh, confiding in her. So things go from kind of bad to worse. And Arthur, the middle child, he'd always been kind of sickly. He was sent to live with his grandfather in 1823, probably because of the belief that it was healthier to live near the sea. But he died of tuberculosis in 1824. And that same year, Fanny's father died. Um, biographies don't have much to say at all about how much this double loss must have affected her. And maybe she didn't have much time to think about it, because between the depression, the cost of sending two sons to boarding school, and their penchant for keeping up appearances, the trollops were on the brink of bankruptcy. So if she knew that that might have been um, competing with her grief, so panic and grief... Yeah, because her father was really well-liked between, you know, within the family. I know Thomas writes of him very, in a very complimentary way and says how much, what a good time he had going to say with his grandfather Milton and has really fond memories of him. It's a bigger impact than when she lost her mum when she was five because she has a really strong relationship with her father, I guess. Yes, yeah, and to lose your father so soon after you lose your son is just like can't even imagine that level of loss so how does thomas react uh so thomas yeah so thomas is um not like doing anything to ease fanny's burden he becomes even more erratic and even more angry probably still dosing himself up with calomel oh for sure on a regular basis 
Yeah, um, so Fanny takes to sending her daughters to visit relatives to protect them from his wrath. The boys at least have the respite of school, and so she doesn't have to worry about getting them out of the way as often. But the girls, she sends off on holidays to anyone who will take them, basically. So just a rotating round of holidays. When she can't send the children away, she tries to keep morale up by putting on French plays, and as she writes to her friend, Mary Russell Mitford, quote, Our theater is made in our drawing room, and the object of it was to improve the French pronunciation of our children. Some more diplomacy in pretending there's a different motive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have served two purposes, but it definitely, like, boosts morale, and if you learn some French, then all the better. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for doing French plays instead of English, but also there's a reason you're doing plays at all. Mm-hmm. So, hemorrhaging money, Thomas decided to move the family to a smaller farm four miles away. Because the farm's working out, it's just the size that's the problem. (laughs) But that's an off-putting distance in the 1820s, and meant practically that Fanny would be cut off from her circle of friends. And then, to make the matters worse, the farm isn't in great shape, so the outbuildings are in a kind of various states of decay. And biographers just describe the whole place as dilapidated. In September of 1827, Fanny goes to visit her brother Henry in Paris. Do you know, I didn't have time to dig deeper into that. Was there a reason, or did she just go? Um, I don't particularly know. He was maybe having, maybe about to get married, or having some sort of issues... So that was her pretense for going. And to visit old friends from the Bristol days, the Garnets, who Henry is helping return to Europe after living in America for a while. So she decides she needs a break from Thomas. We'll just we'll just run with that. <laughs> and she goes to visit her brother <laughs> in Paris. And Teresa Ransom makes a point about Paris being cheaper to live in than England. So maybe she was being kind of savvy in that sense. So Fanny meets in Paris with another Francis, Francis Wright. A friend of hers, and we'll just give a quick bio of Frances Wright because she's a, an interesting figure who will come up much more in the second part of this episode. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Frances Wright is a Scottish-born American social reformer whose revolutionary views on religion, education, marriage, birth control, and other matters made her both a popular author and lecturer and a target of vilification. Dun dun dun. So she's definitely someone we should cover in the future in her own episode. Um, she sounds really complex. I'd heard of her kind of in passing, but I work much more with late century authors, so um, don't know that much more about her. We'll learn some in the second part of this episode. Um, yeah, I know bits and pieces about her, but only kind of via Fanny Trollope. And there's one quote that I really like that really endears her to me, which is about a vow she made in her youth to wear ever in her heart the cause of the poor and the helpless and to aid in all that she could in redressing the grievous wrongs which seem to prevail in society. And that's a girl after my own heart. Mm -hmm. And she seems to have kept busy doing that throughout her lifetime. Yeah, she's kind of, she acts on what she says. She's not just um, hot air or she's not just saying these things, she's doing them. In the meantime, until we get to a full episode on Francis Wright. Um, there's a biography called In Common Cause, which covers the lives of Francis Trollope and Francis Wright and the intersections of their lives. 
So I'll link to that in the show notes. I haven't really gotten into it yet, but it seems promising. Yeah, I've browsed it and I find it really interesting that it frames um, Francis Wright as a radical and Francis Trollope as a conservative for reasons we may well find out. I'm kind of uncomfortable with terming Francis Trollope a conservative. Mm -hmm. But that seems to have been a thing that scholars did for a while and we will address that more soon. But I think that um, we've already kind of highlighted some ways in which her her life challenges that easy label. Yeah, for sure. I guess anyone next to Frances Wright kind of looks like a conservative. Yeah. She's very... she's on it. So Frances Wright had recently come back to Europe to recover from um, what people in the biographies are calling, quote, American fever, which I have no idea what that is, y'all, but um, that's what they called it. So maybe something like typhoid or some sort of flu, I don't know. It must it must just be some kind of infectious ailment that wasn't so prevalent in the in Europe. Yeah, and I'm wondering, since she's in the American South, if it's a mosquito-related situation. Oh, could be. At any rate, she also has made it a goal, because she's never doing just one thing, as we'll soon find out, to recruit people to her current cause, a commune in Tennessee at which she meant to prepare slaves for emancipation um, by educating them. I'm not 100% sure what was included in that education. Maybe you could fill us in a little, because I remembered you'd mentioned it before, Eleanor. Um, yeah, I... I can't remember off the top of my head. I know Frances Trollope writes about it in her Domestic Manners of the Americans, which I think we'll talk about next episode, and was pretty controversial. I don't think the Americans took very kindly to it. The commune was called Nashoba, and I get the impression the kind of idea of it was to just get slaves used, or ex-slaves used to living in the world as free people. Kind of like some, kind of like a house, halfway house is the impression I get. Hmm. Interesting. I'm imagining something like a cross between a finishing school and a, like, an elementary school, maybe. So, like, um, cultural and liter- and, and linguistic literacy, maybe? Yeah. I was kind of imagining it in my head as the, the bit at the end of Shawshank Redemption where they get to live free, but they're kind of, it's kind of reintroducing them into society, I guess unless they're people who were born into slavery, and then it's just introducing them to society and living as equals as they should be. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me that she's preparing... um, She's preparing for emancipation, what, this is like 40 years before it actually happens. So in some ways she's ahead of her time. And even, especially, especially in Tennessee... It's a Scottish woman and an English woman, and obviously slavery by this point had been outlawed in the UK or abolished. So it's interesting how that perspective probably informs what she's doing. Hmm. Among people she attempts to recruit to her cause uh, is Mary Shelley, who politely declines. Um, but it seems that Frances Wright particularly wanted a woman and a writer. So if they could be the same person, that would be amazing. Um, so she made the offer to Frances Trollope, who was decidedly more desperate than Mary Shelley at this point in her life. Yeah, I, 
would imagine so. I can't imagine. I don't know much about Mary Shelley other than the obvious Frankenstein and trip with Percy and Byron stories. And I feel like on paper, the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft is an obvious choice, but also knowing a little bit more about Mary Shelley's own beliefs, she's probably not going to go for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she is a successful writer at this point. Like, she's already written Frankenstein. She's writing lots of other things. Yeah, she doesn't have that motive. But Fanny, on the other hand, has lots to gain and little to lose. So, in November of 1827, at the age of 49 years old, she decides to set out to America to make a new life in what many people still thought of as, quote, the new world. Okay, so this is a natural breaking point, and we're going to stop here on the verge of the new adventures, which would lead to her brilliant career, and pick up with Fanny's experience in the States in part two. And we will teaser, if you're in Cincinnati, you'll find out why you might not be the biggest fan of Fanny Trollope, even though we like her. (laughs) Yes. So, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. After the ball, sung by Mr. George J. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to our website at www.victorianscribblers.com. There, you can access past episodes, find show notes with links to further resources, and catch up on all the latest podcast news. You can also find out about how to support our podcast on our website, including a link to our Patreon account, where a minimum monthly contribution will give you access to all sorts of goodies and extras. And this year, patrons get access to original songs and artwork by your brilliant hosts. We're able to keep growing and bringing you quality content because of support from our listeners. So if you love the show, please consider subscribing on Patreon, leaving us a review on iTunes, or purchasing some of the lovely Victorian Scribblers mugs, tote bags, t-shirts, or sweaters on our swag shop. Every little bit helps. Music for this podcast courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archives. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.